Hello, this is Michelle Weston with Learning Curves 2.0, where we talk about living with chronic conditions and empower ourselves on Radio 360, which is about empowering women to overcome and persevere with a chronic condition. Today, I have someone and he has had two chronic conditions that he has worked through. Um, Seth Horowitz is a wonderful guy who lives here up on the Upper East Side near me. And I love the opportunity to talk to Seth because he had his first challenge when he was in high school. And he is a very accomplished uh, business person. He has been doing that here in New York for a couple of decades. And, you know, some of us have, as I would say, invisible illness, and some of us have visible. And when you have a cane in your hand, those of you who have a cane or have some kind of apparatus, you know that everybody has questions, everybody looks. And how do you handle that? How do you sort of overlook and overcome, or maybe just figure out what your answers are to things. And then Seth later was challenged with another um, chronic condition. So I'm going to let Seth talk about this because I'm really curious and interested. Um, I do not know one of the chronic conditions he has. So we both get to, we all get to learn together. So Seth, how are you? I'm good, Michelle. How are you? Good. It's great to have you on. And uh, another person who is a patient who can really present things to other patients and caregivers on how you handle living with a chronic condition and then having some more stuff um, dumped on you that you just sort of, you know, you either swim with it or you drown. And so I know Seth as a swimmer. So what happened during high school? Sure. So I can give you some background. Um, So early on in high school, actually, Prior to high school that year, um, I had been feeling ill for quite some time. I was kind of lethargic. Things just didn't seem right. And I went from doctor to doctor who all seemed to say that everything seems fine. Um, Maybe you're just nervous about high school and you'll probably be okay. Uh, Cut to my first day of high school. Um, I wound up having to run out of the classrooms, call it five or six times that day because I couldn't hold down any food or anything like that. I was clearly ill, but then I went back to class. And then that evening, um, I went to an other doctor yet again. Um, I was told again, I'm nervous and this and that, but all that seemed kind of strange as my whole life, um, you could use lots of adjectives to describe me and nervous is rarely one of them. (laughs) So I went back to school the second day and this was the second day of my freshman year of high school. And again, it was the same thing where I hadn't eaten for several days, but I still had a constant upset stomach, which wanted to evacuate itself. And again, I finished the day of school. I came home. Um, I didn't make it 10 feet into the house until I just laid on the couch, woke up about two hours later. And again, someone just said, you know what, we have to go back to the doctor right now because something's not right. And at the time I was going to a pediatric doctor factory, I would call it, which I think most people from the suburbs kind of understand where there are six doctors and maybe four of them started the practice and the other two doctors kind of new people come and go. So there's floating going on because the newer doctors maybe aren't paid as well and they want to leave. But long story short, you never really knew who you were going to get. So 
on that the would side. be uncomfortable, especially as a kid, even as an sure. adolescent. It's, you know, it's like continuity is always nice when you see the doctor. Exactly. And you kind of want to get the feeling that the doctor knows your case, yeah. knows who you are. Whereas when you're going in and every time it's somebody new, um, it's fine as long as you're not ill and all you're getting is wellness checks and things like that. But sure. when it comes to actually dying, diagnosing something, um, you want someone who has followed you in a linear fashion, um, can see that things may have changed, may have come up with certain suppositions in the past, which may now have shown themselves to be proven wrong, um, but just being able to follow you. So on that second day of school, after the second day of school, uh, I saw a brand new doctor who I had never met before. And she gave me the same exam that everybody else had. And um, she kind of looked into my eyes. Something seemed a little bit wrong. She said, you know what? I don't think you have a major issue right now, but clearly something's going on. Why don't we get you to a neurologist? So, Good idea. <laughs> which kind of made some sense. because yeah, So you did have somebody who actually thought a little more than the others. Exactly. Um, so in that next day, um, starting in the morning, I saw a neurologist. Uh, this was 1992. Two, I believe. So I then went for an MRI, which probably took about four hours, whereas nowadays it'd maybe take 15 minutes. Isn't um, that wild that it's changed so much that it took so much longer? It was the beginning of when we were doing MRIs. Wow. Exactly. Um, that would be horrible if you hated, if you were claustrophobic and it took that long, that would, oh my goodness, that would be horrific. Exactly. <laughs> so to my earlier point, if I was, if I were a nervous kid, would I be laying in there for four hours with just banging and all that stuff going on in this little tube, having no issue where I call it the construction zone. That's what it sounds like to me in the MRI machine. It always sounds like construction zone. And now if you've had any MRIs, they've added music and I just look at them and go, please don't just please don't. It sounds like a construction zone. It overrules everything. I don't want to hear music. I want you to just Tell me, and I have a deal. I'm not claustrophobic at all, but I want you to tell me the amount, the time of the series. So I'll say, sure. please just tell me it's three minutes. Tell me it's two minutes. Tell me it's one minute. Tell me it's five minutes. Because then I have an idea of time in the tube. And that's sure. all I want. I mean, you know, some people, I have to have it twice a year. So, you know, the tube is enough. And then you have to be in there for hours and not move and crazy, crazy. So what did they find with the MRI? Sure. So I got out of the MRI again, this is after four hours or so, or handful of hours. Um, and I saw my neurologist standing there and given that back in the nineties, MRIs were definitely, uh, more dispersed than they are now, where it's not like everything is owned by a handful of radiological companies. Um, you had lots of these smaller places where they had the MRI machine. That was all they had. They were not affiliated with a hospital. Mm. We just, you would just go and get the MRI there. You get your packet of scans and then you go to a doctor. Right. So I was 14 years old. Um, and even in my head, then coming out of this tube, seeing my doctor who was not there when I went in, who was there when I, when I came out, it was fairly clear that we had a situation on it. Long story short, I had a golf ball sized brain tumor on my brainstem and they wanted me wow. to go for emergency surgery within days. So wow. This, oh, but first they ignored you for in the span of 
Days about, or weeks? Yeah. About two days. I went from he's a nervous kid to, wow, we have to get this kid brain surgery or he's going to die. Wow. So that was 1992. Um, when they took this tumor out and it took me probably, let's call it five months to get a pretty much full recovery. Although I now had a small window in the back of my skull, which they had to cut out. Um, I was back to normal. I was playing ice hockey on my high school hockey team. So I was past that point. But at that point, clearly the question is, where did this tumor come from? Mm. Why did this kid have a tumor? Um, what's the deal? And at the time, um, because there's actually now a blood test available for it, but at the time there was not. Um, wow. I was diagnosed with something called von Hippel Lindau. And it's a... And you had said VHL. People call it shorthand VHL. Okay. Because nobody really knows how to spell von Hippel Lindau <laughs> most of the time. And that includes myself sometimes. If I have to type it for someone, I will wind up going to uh, the vhl.org website just to get the spelling so I can send it on. That's funny. So I learned that I had von Hippel Lindau, which is a genetic disease. And basically, it happens when one gene kind of flips where my my specific case is called a substitution where it's supposed to be a certain gene pair and it's actually something else. And as a result of that abnormality, um, I'm prone to multi-organ issues where it's largely central nervous system in my case where I get brain tumors, I get spinal tumors, um, but there are other people also affected with kidneys, with their eyes. Um, it really affects a lot from your body because the VHL gene is actually something very interesting because we have learned recently that um, the way this gene functions and the processes which it kicks off are largely responsible for cleaning waste out of cells, basically. Um, oh, interesting. And because of certain developments made studying VHL within the last 10 years, uh, it has actually turned into um, certain ways where people are looking at new ways of fighting cancer and other cancers not related to people with VHL, but people with certain kidney cancers. There's actually a drug on the market right now, which only exists because of studying this particular thing. But to your earlier point, it was at this moment that I had one of these invisible long-term issues where I learned that I would have to go for certain scans. At the time, it was yearly. Um, as things progressed, sometimes they became semi-annually or quarterly. And then as things got better and or there was some kind of surgical intervention, we would go back to yearly for things like that. Cool. Um, but that was my invisible long-term situation, which I kind of had to deal with. And I, I guess I've always been of the mind where if it's not something I can control, it's kind of something I just have to roll with. And whereas, how did your friends roll with it? How was it being, you know, in high school with that? Because you, you were on the hockey team too. Sure. So actually funny story there. Um, the reason I was able to play hockey still is okay. because I was a hockey goalie. And if you look at hockey helmets relative yes. to goalie masks, okay. a goalie mask happened to have a plate in the back, which covered up the hole in my skull. Oh, no. Oh, how interesting. So it was actually safer for them to be shooting pucks at me <laughs> than for me to be a regular skater because that piece was at least protecting that part of my head. So, I mean, that being said, uh, 
going back to school for the first several months was certainly interesting. Uh, I had a giant scar down the back of my head and it was, I think my school had 1600 people. So it was not a very small school, but not a huge school either. So everybody kind of heard about the kid who was here for the first two days and then, then kind of vanished for a while. And yeah. then we saw him show up at homecoming in a wheelchair and now he's back. Uh, he seems to be walking. Okay. If not a little bit slowly, um, he seems to be complaining about headaches and asking to go to the nurse quite a bit, which I can tell you right now was because I didn't feel like being in class and I wanted to lay down <laughs> in the nurse's office where I, I felt it. fine. I was just bored. Um, <laughs> and that was kind of my life for a number of years where I just had these regular tests and it was something which I dealt with. I certainly didn't let it define me in any kind of way. It was just, I am who I am. This is something which I have to deal with and it's something which I do. So how was your parents with that? You know, um, I think they're also fairly okay with it where they clearly weren't happy with the situation. Sure. Um, I should also add that the disease itself, 80% of people who have it wind up getting it from their parents. So oh, you, you said it was genetic. Sure. Okay. So a couple of years later, when a blood test came out where you could check the actual DNA, my whole family was tested and luckily everybody was fine. But it was definitely something where, I mean, obviously the surgery was not something which, which they took well, um, where having your son go in for brain surgery and watch him learn how to walk again and things like that certainly couldn't have been fun. Um, but they kind of saw that I really wasn't looking for a whole lot of extra attention because of it. So none was really given, which was kind of fun. Um, again, it's something that's part of my life, but not really my life. And got it. That, that was how things went on for years and years where I got my scans and so on and so forth until um, I had a second surgery in 2001, which I'm sure we can talk about, which kind of changed things up a little bit. And how did it change things up? So you had a second surgery on what did they have to do for this this first surgery? And then I know second surgery. Sure. So um, the first surgery was just taking out that one tumor and make sure everything was okay. And okay. Because I had this syndrome, um, I repeatedly got my tests, made sure everything was good. And then um, after I graduated college, actually, pretty much right after, um, and I, I had accepted a job for one of the larger Wall Street firms out there. Um, and I got my signing bonus in hand. I was super excited about that. And they wanted me to go to London for one year to basically work on training and certain things before coming back to New York for, for the full-time job here. So how exciting. Everything sounded great. I was super happy um, and things were good. And I then went for my uh, yearly follow-up and it turned out that a small tumor, which they had been following on my spine for a number of years, appeared to have grown a little bit, not a lot, okay. but a little bit. Enough and to market, enough to say, okay, we're noting this. Exactly. And had I been staying in the US, I think we probably would not have done anything. But because I was going to England for one year and all my doctors were here, um, it it was argued, and I can definitely second guess this, and I think fairly second guess this, um, it was decided that because I was going to be gone for one year and outside of the care of my doctors, 
we should have a quote minor spinal surgery. We go on on Monday. They'll be home by Friday. We can take this tumor out, and we won't have to worry about that while you're gone. Got so, it. long story short, after this quote unquote minor surgery, I woke up a quadriplegic that afternoon. Oh my afternoon. God! Come on. So it was certainly an interesting thing where I remember this like it was yesterday and it is now going back 20 plus years, um, asking my neurologist, not neurosurgeon on the way out. Um, okay. Since working on the spine here, what are the odds of paralysis and, or this or that? And the response was somebody would really have to screw something up. Thank you. So, So to this day, I don't know if that's an accurate statement or not, but the fact of the matter is I woke up the way I woke up and I have my suspicions about what, what exactly happened just based on the behavior of certain surgeons, the way certain op reports appear to, to have been written as if somebody was copying them from an actual textbook to make sure, oh, that's that, it's, odd. Okay. Make sure that it was exactly the way it should be. Whereas when they were writing their notes. Correct. Where no surgery goes perfectly, where someone's heart rate always goes up or goes down. They change the anesthesia slightly. That's just the way medicine works. Um, If something is 100% perfect and yet somehow unexplainedly there's this catastrophic event, maybe those odds or maybe those notes aren't really uh, indicative of what actually happened during that surgery. Hmm. So here I was um, after the surgery, I went to inpatient rehab um, for, or after being in the hospital for almost a month, I spent another two months basically in inpatient rehab, which is crazy. And you're in New York city where you here on the Island or are you here in the city for surgery? Sure. So the actual surgery was on Long Island. Okay. Um, and I moved to New York city for the uh, inpatient rehab. Oh, okay. I was in a famous hospital way on the Upper East Side. I think people can guess where. No, that you is. can say it. Doesn't matter. Doesn't Mount matter. Sinai. Uh, okay. Yeah. No. 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 Everybody. You know, because people are curious where you know, and sometimes I get you know, if they're in other states, you get to find out about places there. It's not like it's not like I'm blaming Mount Sinai. It's oh, I love Mount, Mount Sinai. Sinai. Sure. Yeah, but and understand, there's a lot of good doctors out there, and okay. you know, nobody wants to have something have a poor outcome like that. I mean, I'm sure that the neurosurgeon was not thinking that this was going to be this. Exactly. So if you want but to owning it, it is important, but, but owning it is important. And I hope that he or she owned it. And Absolutely. at least, I mean, you know, you don't apologize for something, but you say, you know, this outcome was my, what we intended. So now we have to go this way. Sure. So Unfortunately, I could say that that is not what happened That's in my shame. case. That's and um, putting together all of all of those pieces, like I said, um, it seems that my surgery was performed by a resident as opposed to the actual neurosurgeon. Who, now we have a problem. Who I spoke to. Um, yeah. And the resident was in my hospital room the next day showing photos, asking if it was OK if he presented my case um, at some kind of um, neurosurgical a symposium. Yeah. Symposium. He was going to in Arizona that next day. And all this was very fresh. And I was being told at the time that all of the paralysis issues were basically related to some swelling. And 
it would go down within a week or two and then I would be fine. That was that. A month. You were a month in the hospital, which it didn't go down. Correct. And he, as well as the senior surgeon, both managed to completely disappear within the span of a week where they want no contact with me whatsoever. And to your point. And they're just worrying about malpractice. That's what they're worried about. Where I wasn't looking for an apology. I was just looking for, okay, this is where you stand. This is where we need to go forward. So, so after that, I moved to Mount Sinai for the rehab. Uh, and I have stories from that place, which I'll carry with me forever. Uh, <laughs> just out of the, which would make for a fantastic movie and people wouldn't believe it, but sometimes, <laughs> sometimes truth is stranger than fiction, but you had you become have, your own advocate. I mean, big time, especially, yes. you know, two months in inpatient rehabilitation at Mount Sinai, you had to be advocating all the time. And to your point, um, Mount Sinai, as good as it is, and it's one of the better facilities out there, but they only have so much staff. And because it's inpatient rehab, as opposed to the hospital itself, the level of care is dialed down significantly because they aren't worried about anybody dying. They're just, they just want to make sure that you're going to physical therapy. Um, you're being occupational therapy too. occupational therapy as well. And, um, to that end, I needed help in the shower. I needed I'd help going to the bathroom because I, at that point I was still a, I would say tetraplegic, but close to quadriplegic where my left hand was working a little bit, but not very much. Mm-hmm. So my parents had to get a lot more involved at that point um, where I was now 22 years old, I guess. And mm-hmm. having my mom shower me was definitely not something which. And you didn't go to London. I did not get to go to London. You did not get to go to London. That's such a drag. And the capitalist in me is going to say one of the most painful aspects of this whole thing was sending back my signing bonus because I had this money. Sure. And I mean, I was a college kid. I never had any money before. And all of a sudden, somebody sent me a check with a comma in it. And that was just fantastic. So I had to send that back. And yeah, the old plan was largely interrupted and it was time to work on a new plan. A new plan. So you didn't end up there at that firm. So I actually eventually went back in through the back door. Okay. Uh, I kind of worked my way up based on an old internship. I took jobs. Um, I guess I'll call them way beneath what the job I had signed up for were just to kind of get there to that. Got point. it. Um, wow. So that happened after um, this was probably, almost one full year after the surgery, I was able to go back to work. So I went from a power chair for several months to a wheelchair for almost a year. And then uh, two arm crutches for, let's call it six months after that. And then finally some canes down to finally one cane. Um, But through this process, as I got rid of more and more equipment, I was able to work more and more as well. And I mean, luckily for my case, because it was a white collar job, um, as long as I could type and make phone calls, um, how I got into my chair wasn't that important. Whereas got it. it was a more physical role, then that would have been would have been more of an issue for me. And so to your point, I now had two issues I was dealing with, two chronic conditions where I still had von Hippolindau, and I now also had a spinal cord injury. So because I was kind of able to compartmentalize uh, 
the VHL aspect of it, I was kind of able to keep on doing that. Whereas when dealing with a spinal cord injury, you can't really say, I'm going to ignore that because every morning when you're putting on your shoes, you may have a leg brace, which you have to put on. Um, maybe you can't walk more than 15 feet without that. Um, if you need canes or crutches or even a wheelchair, that's something which you just have to do. So it's not something which you can ignore, but at the same time, it's not something which you can kind of stare at and cry for a couple hours. Um, <laughs> I mean, I suppose you could, but if you want to make any money and get to work, it's not going to work out very well for you. So no. you kind of have to get on. You persevere. It. You say, you know what? I'm overriding this. Let's go. Exactly. Um, and that's and- hard. I, You know what? I have people here on about chronic conditions. And when we talk about it every week, guys, I know this is hard. And with each chronic condition comes challenges. But, you know, to be just out of college, starting your whole career sucks. It just sucks, you know, and you have to decide, okay, am I going to let this down? Am I going to let myself down? Am I going to let this color everything? And for some of us, it takes longer. And that's just, you know, you have to decide whether you want to persevere or not, whether you want to keep going. I think that's 100% accurate. Um, and I kind of joke sometimes where had you approached me at, at my graduation, knowing I was going to Wall Street, knowing all that, and said, you're going to be in rehab in one year. Um, I would think of a very different kind of rehab where Wall Street definitely was known for certain excesses and vices for quite some time. Um, but I didn't even know what physical therapy rehab was. Um, <laughs> sure, because you never had to go. Exactly. Um no. But and yeah, hospitals, so. hospitals, things happen for me at, at Mount Sinai. So I actually do not love Mount Sinai because sure. that was something easy. It was supposed to be, you know, removing of an apron of skin after I lost a lot of weight and, you know, hernias. And I came out of it and was put on the wrong floor. You know, when you make, that's where you have to advocate. I said, put me on the bariatric floor or put me in the neurology wing. Didn't matter. You can put either one for my MS or for bariatrics, but it's fine. They put me in orthopedics. And orthopedics, now I can't move. And the woman next to me, I find out in the morning, and they won't let me get up. And I'm very upset because I know that the doctor wants me to get up. The woman next to me has two septic knees. Two. That's yeah. And I have 300 stitches in my gut. Yeah. Yeah. So what did I get? I left the hospital with MRSA and staff. I mean, I had, so I'm not in love with them. I actually met with their, uh, with their, um, general counsel. Cause I, you know, I'm not litigious. I come from, uh, you know, sure. my doctor's daughter. So, but I was angry and they were like, well, what do you want? I said, I want you never to do this again. And I'm in the press. So if this happens again, and I hear about this, I will send the New York times and I will send wall street journal and I will send any paper I can get a hold of that will write something about this after you, because this could have been prevented. All you had to do was listen to the patient. All you had to do, I told you three times before we went into surgery, didn't happen on the surgery, didn't happen in operating room, which is normally, right? Like yours happened in the operating room. Mine didn't even happen in the operating room. And you're like, why why did you do that? So hospitals are strange, you know, and the resident, you know, that he had been allowed to, which in teaching hospitals, everyone listening right now, teaching hospitals are a good thing because we need doctors to be educated and learn. But 
you also have to, as the teacher, know when someone is ready and know how much you can give them to do. But, you know, New York City, we have a lot of teaching hospitals and I wouldn't trade that for the world, right? So I would say to your point of being your own advocate, knowing that certain hospitals can be great, but your treatment is only as good as your doctor who's actually dealing with it. Yeah. And if you don't have staff, you said inpatient, there wasn't as much staff because, you know, get them to PT, get them to OT, you know, not having help doing the things that you needed help. It's like, what's going on here? Why am I being left to my own, you know, decisions here and my own, you know, your mom have to do that. That's crazy. That's insane. Yeah. But again, it's one of those things where you kind of have to do what you have to do. And along those lines. So with my condition, um, I actually needed two more brain surgeries after that. Um, And at the time I had to shop around for, for new surgeons, because as you can imagine, my old surgeon was not really high on my list of someone. And you didn't want, you don't want to be near him. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. Um, And I actually went back to that hospital on on for a second opinion and just walking in, in those doors and smelling those smells and seeing that hospital just set kind of weird chills down my spine. Mm, but mm. so at this point, I interviewed a surgeon and I will say interviewed because it's your choice where yes. you get to choose your surgeon and they also have the option to say no to certain things. But I went to Columbia Presbyterian and yeah. I met with a neurosurgeon there. I asked him, what do you think? What do you want to do? And it wasn't said, McCann, well, was it? It was not. Okay. You know, McCann, I had my girlfriend who had encephalitis and she saw Dr. McCann. Gotcha. New York Presbyterian has some unbelievable neurosurgeons. Yes. Um, so, so I'm sure we've actually been inside that same office where they have eight or so neurosurgeons, yes. all of which are award-winning, fantastic surgeons. Um, and I met with this one guy. He was very short to the point. Um, I don't need a lot of bedside manner myself um, where when I go to a mechanic, I want the best mechanic for my car. Um, I don't need someone who's going to be very nice to me. And he was a very nice guy, but he was to the point. And during this process, I said, look, um, I have no proof of this, but it is it is my belief that a student caused my issues after my last surgery. I, I want to have a conversation with you that your hands are the only hands that go inside my body when we're doing the surgery. And I understand this is a teaching hospital. Yes. I, I therefore understand you can say, look, I can't make that promise. And that's fine if that's the case, but we're having. Then I get to make right a decision. Now. Then I get to make a decision. Yep. Exactly. So he said to me, he said, look, given your case, I'll be the only person operating on you. So we had that conversation right there. And if you want 50 students in the room watching you, feel sure. free. That's fine. Absolutely. By me. They can all be up in the viewing, you know, viewing space and for the theater. Absolutely. Exactly. Um, so I met with the surgeon and he has since operated on me twice. Um, I think if you added up all of our conversations, uh, you're probably under a half hour um, <laughs> where it's how you feeling. I'm feeling good, doc. Thank you. Um, do you need anything? No, I'm good. Okay. Thanks. And that was kind of that where when I have to deal with surgeries and things like that, everything is very transactional. And to your point, a patient needs to be their own advocate. And unfortunately, during COVID, especially, 
I think a lot of people lost the opportunity to do that. Um, Absolutely. Well, that was just, I mean, a pandemic is just the weirdest thing because everybody's kept away from each other. Correct. It just becomes such crazy. I mean, crazy. Thank God this didn't happen during that. And I actually was in a position where I was ready to be my own advocate. Knock on wood. Thank God. Exactly. We were already talking. Um, I mean, I've been dealing with the situation for over 20 years. I could be my own advocate, um, whereas certain people need a family member to help them out. And during the last several years, it was much harder for family members to sit in on certain meetings or if someone, to your point, is on the wrong floor. And there's only so much fighting you can do from your bed as opposed to someone going into an admin office and saying, look, this person is going to get an infection on this floor. I want them moved now. Um it's very easy for someone to hang up a phone, but a lot harder to have someone escorted from their office who's yes. making noise. Yes. Um, and, and I'm sure your parents became experts being the caregivers and the advocates and being louder than they ever thought they had to be. So pretty much, pretty much. And unfortunately, that's where we are, where our medical system does some fantastic things. Uh, but sometimes some people need to be shoved along just a little bit. And you always want to make sure that when you're getting care, you're getting the best care possible for you. And I mean, frankly, some of the choices I've made certain people wouldn't make where they would want a surgeon who's going to talk to them, make them feel good about the surgery, uh, explain every little step where that's them. And I fully understand that, but that's just not me. Where And it's nice to know what you need and what your style is, you know, so so that you choose someone, of course, with great skill. Absolutely. But also, you know, what, you know, what is their style? Honestly, what is their style? Because that makes a difference. And I would even say that um, you want to be comfortable and have all the information available to you. So God forbid something does happen. You made that choice knowing everything and you you were part of that choice. Whereas to this day, I look back on my quote unquote bad surgery and I was not really part of it where it was a conversation. A doctor said, well, yeah, this is what you do. Clearly, there was no in-depth conversation of, look, this is what could happen with any kind of spinal surgery. It was, I mean, I was literally told that somebody would really have to screw something up. How ironic that that was the language that came out of the mouth of babes, you know, like really somebody would have to screw something up. Yeah. And then that happened. Then they somebody did. screwed something up. Then they did. You, and I'm sure that you, like me, did they do it on purpose? No. Did they do it to you? No, they did it. Yep. And it could happen to others. And that's also a concern because, you know, as a human, you're like, this should never happen. I hate it that it happened to me. And God forbid it should happen to another. Sure. So as you mentioned, I was a Wall Street analyst for a number of years. So I'm a very quantitative person. But if you tell me that the odds of complication from a surgery are X percent, that's fine. I understand that. But people also need to know that when something happens to you, it has fully happened to you. You don't get 2% paralyzed. You're 100% paralyzed. And that's something which you have to deal with. Um, and I, again, this is just more to, I feel like patients need to be super informed. And I think that makes it easier when something does happen to maybe accept that. Where I had a surgery in 2016, I believe it was. And this is actually when I was shopping around four surgeons and the one surgeon wanted to operate. And then 
the second opinion surgeon, basically, he didn't want to touch me. Um, it seemed afterward that there was a little more backstory behind that, where he actually knew the original surgeon. He was there in the hospital, not the operating room, but when things kind of hit the fan and I was almost radioactive where they didn't really want to touch me. And his recommendation, his recommendation was, I feel like we should get new MRIs once a month or so and this and that. And I was kind of sitting there where it was, did I want to live my life under the sword of Damocles for the next, however long it took um, until somebody was finally comfortable or somebody felt that it was time for surgery or was I okay with the, with the risk associated with the surgery going in, understanding more than anybody, because I had had a surgery gone wrong, that I could have some major problems here. Um, I was comfortable with my decision that it was time to have surgery and we should get it over with. I understand what the risks were and more so than most. And in fact, it was kind of funny looking back on it because I was talking to a doctor about how do we plan for rehab afterward? Um, do we start setting that up now so I can go to inpatient rehab and this and that. And looking back on it, he was kind of staring at me like I was a little bit crazy. Like, I don't think you need this. <laughs> and afterwards, it turned out I did not need this where I had brain surgery on a Wednesday morning and I was in the car going home on Friday. So I had pre- prepared myself for a worst case scenario of I'm going to have to learn how to walk all over again. I'm going to have to go back to rehab. I'm going to deal with wheelchairs. I'm going to deal with all of that. Um, whereas Luckily, that was not the case. But had that actually happened, I was ready to deal with it because I understood what was going on. And I had advocated for myself to the point that I was comfortable going forward with whatever would wind up happening. And luckily, things turned out well. Which is great. And as you said, listen to what Seth is saying. And I'm glad you said that, Seth. This happened at Mount Sinai, and you ended up at... um, Columbia Presbyterian because you were you were also like electric they didn't want to touch you there at Mount Sinai and maybe I guess what I'm pointing out is Seth and I want your comment on this is sometimes you have to go out to seek people because something happened and now everybody in the hospital and that division may be more hesitant and sometimes not sometimes people want to actually go no we need to fix this it depends so I try and Jump back one second with a minor correction. So the surgery, which went wrong, was at North Shore, which is now part of Northwell Health. Right. Um, Correct. Anyone listening that's also in in the city, North Shore, Lenox Hill is now part of Northwell. And we've had a lot of mergers. So we can talk about that, too. There's a lot of mergers that have happened, not just in New York um, City, but in a lot of places. So Northwell um, has is a huge umbrella. They're trying to turn things around dramatically over Atlantic Hill. They're doing a lot in in the neurosurgery department. A big, gotcha. big like you know they've actually done TV stuff for Netflix about it because taking having Northwell take over and getting like top you know A list people in there to lead as the chairman is a big deal. Sure. So here you know Mount Sinai, you know North Shore. Um, Northwell, and then, you know, we got Columbia Presbyterian, you know, it's, it's, it's all, you have to keep remembering, you're looking for the best person for you, who is the most skilled at that. And Seth is right, you don't always need 
especially with surgeons, you guys, you don't always need the best bedside manner. When I had a gallbladder out, this Australian who was lovely, but I, you know, what I can remember of him doing my gallbladder is he didn't like when I got there, you know, in the 80s over at uh, Mount Sinai, Mount Sinai in the 80s. And they were taking too long in, in the prep room. And he was just like, he looked at me and he walked in there. I'm in my, you know, in my dressing gown and ready for surgery with my slippers. And he goes, do you want to take a walk? And I don't know. I've never had surgery in my life. So I'm like, sure, where are we going? He goes, to the operating room. So here I have this lovely Australian gentleman who is walking me down the halls. And I got to experience something that also was important to me. So going forward in surgery, I actually made sure this happened. I do not like to be wheeled in to surgery. I prefer to walk in. I think that what's important about this is, is you're you're looking for the understanding more, you know, and you have become an expert in some things you've never thought you'd have to become an expert in, which is a good thing that you were curious and you kept asking. I get more concerned about people who don't advocate, who don't ask questions, you know, um, why can I walk into an operating room? Well, because you're just going of your own volition. You can walk in and then you get up on the table and it's freezing, freezing cold in there. Nice guys. And cold it, in is, there. Yep. it has to be, first of all, it's, first of all, it needs to be cold because I think there's some a couple of reasons. I asked my father too. He said, "Well, first of all, it needs to be cold because we need to keep you at uh, a certain temperature, and second of all, we're more awake. If it's really cold in there, we are absolutely, you know, present, and that's a good thing." Um, I didn't. I mean, why would I know that? Why would you know that? You know, and I'm sure there's also things in regards to opening up a body that it may be, it may have to be at a certain temperature as well. It's also infection. Um, where yep. Very, very important. Thank you for saying that. Germs and whatnot are much happier in warm environments than they are in cool environments. So very good point. Your point, you walk inside though. It's like a refrigerator. Oh um, God. It's, it's just, super it's, it's so weird. You are like, I can't believe somebody works in this all day. It's and so cold. Everybody's wearing scrubs with multiple layers and <laughs> And you're the one with the stupid dressing gown, like a single little gown, which <laughs> they're going to pull off you within five seconds anyway. So you're just in there naked, freezing your butt off. Um, it's so crazy. It's so crazy. That's surgery for you. Yeah. Yeah, no, it is. And I, we're talking about this, listeners, because these are the things that we all get nervous about. So we have conversations, which we are about chronic conditions, and we're introducing you to some things that may be coming up. Understand, we all have different experiences, different conditions, different illnesses, but we all have together something that these are weird things. Like, you know, there are people that never have surgery their whole life. Sure. God bless them. God bless. Please, if you if you never had to go in, God bless you. You know, I don't have to go in for MS. So MS is not something neurological that I would ever be on a table for. It wouldn't sure. happen. My girlfriend has Wegner's granulatosis, um, uh, MG, it's now called. Uh, that, no, it's not, that, that's a, no, what is it? It's, like you were talking, Wegner's granulatosis, they found out who it was named after and they renamed it in initials. Again, uh, like you have, yep. not just because it was a shorthand, but they renamed it uh, probably in the last 10 years. But okay. the point is, is that with her, Wegner's, her nose collapsed. 
um, the 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 sinuses and stuff, it started to crumble. And really? she's yeah, she's and we're on the same medication, which is very interesting. So things off label. She uses rituximab as an infusion every six months, the same as I do. It's a four hour infusion. But her nose literally just collapsed and they had to rebuild it. So she had to go wow. back in. And that was it. So like Wendy wouldn't have been in surgery ever if she yeah. didn't have to. And you guys, I'm talking about Wendy Schenker, who I had on, who talked about her experience having Wegner's and going through that as she did in her 20s. We have things that bring us together, like freezing cold, uh, sure. you know, operating rooms and, you know, things that happen. Mount Sinai. Great hospital. I just was not happy with. And also, I will mention this now. Um, when decisions are made where people are going to be put, who they should be made by are nurses. Okay. Many, most of the time, they are being made by admin. That's where that fell through the cracks. I should not, that should not have been a decision that administration made where to put me. How did you decide how much you would share about your illness? In the working world, you had a visual now of a cane and a limp. So how did you make decisions on who you would share it with, what you would share, and how did you get there? Because we all wonder about that, even with this. We were talking the other day about that new law for disability for the office. Sure. So at the time, and I don't know if I was naive, uh, but I certainly had no issues sharing my situation with anybody. Um, I didn't volunteer anything because I wasn't really looking for any kind of of accommodation or anything like that, um, but because you I didn't need one, correct? You didn't need accommodations. So I probably could have got certain things. Um, what would you have asked for? What would you have asked for then? Hard to say, but um, so I type with one hand, or I'm sorry, with one finger on my right hand and my left hand touch typing as I did. That being said, um, I can do that faster than most people can type. So. <laughs> Um, would I have maybe been faster if I was looking for some kind of accommodation of a speech to text type of device or something like that? Yeah, maybe. Um, was I curious about maybe doing that at home for my own experiment to see if it worked? Yeah, but frankly, I was kind of working along or limping along, pun intended. <laughs> pun intended. Uh, and everything seemed to work fine. So I didn't really need anything. Uh, I was actually approached by the fire safety warden at one point on the floor who said, look, um, if there is some kind of fire, I'm going to need you to go to blah, 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 elevator bank because you're probably not going to make it down those stairs Perfect. and um, it could be an issue. And I said, okay, that's fine. I have no problem. I don't mind walking downstairs at the time. Um, I think I was physically capable of it as well, um, but I don't want to slow anybody down who's trying to get out of a building. So. To me, it all made sense um, where they had a plan in place and it just so happens there was an older woman sitting at the desk next to me who was also kind of roped into, um, if something happens, make sure you come to this location. Um, otherwise, someone's going to come and get you because we are assuming that you're not going down the stairs. Got but it. to your larger question, um, again, I wasn't wasn't really sharing with anybody that um, over the weekend, I have to go get MRIs for this and that because I may need a brain surgery five years from now. Um, that just wasn't something. Worth- it's, it's also a TMI. Correct. Um, much and- too much information, especially for strangers and work buddies. I mean. Correct. And so 
because of all this, um, I had been working in a job for on call six months. And this guy from the group next to mine, super nice guy. Um, yeah. he, did, he just asked me, what happened with your ankle? Um, did you have some kind of tear or this and that? And I told him what happened because, again, I had no problem sharing that with, with anyone. And I could still see the look on his face where it was just like, I, I thought this guy sprained his ankle playing basketball. And I, I'm now learning that he had a surgery a couple of years ago and he was a quadriplegic. And now he's just sitting here having coffee with me by like the water cooler hanging out. Um, and <laughs> again, he's a young kid with a cane, which is obviously a little bit strange, but um, nobody thought a whole lot more than that. It was just uh, this is kind of what's going on. And that's that. And luckily for a number of years, I did not need a second surgery or I'm sorry, third yeah. surgery. So from 2001 till 2016, I was basically fine. Um, I actually did have a minor surgery along the way um, where because of my ankle, they were looking to perform a small procedure for the dropped foot to see if maybe that would help things out. And kind of a funny story there. Like you say, we all go into these surgeries and have these weird things happen. But um, I go into this operating room and I'm sitting there and laying there. And to your point, it was very cold. And this young guy looks over and he goes, hi, uh, Mr. Horowitz, um, we've been working on blah, 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 and this and that. And I'm kind of staring out a little bit and I ask him, are you blah, 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 where I gave a specific name and mm -hmm. he looked and he said, yeah, uh, you were on my soccer team growing up where oh, I knew his younger brother. Oh, how funny. And it kind of got strange for a moment there because the, the teaching surgeon um, didn't know what to do where we have a patient who knows this guy who's on the operating team. What are we and supposed to do? And can he stay? Now? Like, does he stay or, yeah. He mm. was clearly in this weird spot. And I said, look, I have no problem with him being here whatsoever. And I've actually had that come up again when I was in physical therapy with someone else where there was a trainee, basically, who I went to high school with. Oh, Lovely wow. girl. We were actually so friends. funny. I was at her bat mitzvah. Oh, that's and, the irony in all of this is crazy, right? And all of a sudden they walk over with her and say, I said, this is Lindsay. And I said, I actually know Lindsay for quite some time. And then administrators come over and risk management. And everybody's worried yep, about yep, what yep. do we do? They do. They want to know how you feel about it. And sure. if this is going, if they, if you want to do anything, which actually is a nice thing, they actually sure. are doing their job. Exactly. Um, but, but disability now, I mean, you know, going back to that disability today, you know, we have this new law where, you know, you are supposed to, when you're filling out an application, you know, disclose. And it's like my neurologist said, don't ever, no. ever, ever, ever. And I was like, here they put this in there to help us and it could hurt us. I would agree with that, where I think certain people may hope to check a box and fill some kind of quota, which needs to be filled. Um, whereas, in my opinion, a lot of times when you're checking that box, you're kind of making yourself much more difficult to fire. So even and they if worry about that, yes. they worry about that. HR worries. Yes. Where if you hire somebody, you have to be able to fire them if they aren't doing their job. And if you've all of a sudden added a bunch of hurdles to that firing, they think about that when they're hiring you, where if they can find somebody slightly less qualified than you, but someone who they can fire that next day and not have a major issue, um, they probably want to do that. Um, and it's unfortunate, but that's the world we live in. Yeah. So 
I've never checked that handicap box myself. Um, I've only ever filled it out when I was getting a parking pass or something like that. And well, then it's very useful. <laughs> and it's actually well over a decade since I've had one. Um, because I just didn't feel like I needed it. Um, yeah, if you don't need it, you know what? It's nice to walk away from the car and, exactly. and do it. And you know what? If you like to propel yourself, I got it. I mean, some of us sure. just are not interested in some of that. You know, and sometimes I am interested. Listen, I get on a bus. I have balance issues. Sure. I'm sitting in the front. Yep. Okay. And, and you can ask me and you can give me dirty looks. But you know what? I know I have balance issues. And the idea of a moving bus and me having to walk around there, I'm better. And you're better, actually, as the people on the bus with me, if I just stay here. True. We really, we're, we're all much better. There will be no, like, falling, no, none of that happening. So sometimes it happens. But that's that's probably the only time, really, you know, yeah. when it's something on, like, you know, travel kind of thing. So I actually, I actually used to do that quite a bit where – when I would take the bus to work, when I was in another office building, uh, I would walk on and on a New York City bus, the first six seats, so three on each side, are facing each other. And there's a sign for, for please people? give up your seat yeah. to older people or handicapped people along yeah. those lines. So yeah. my normal routine was to walk on. If it was filled, wait for someone to get up. And if someone didn't, I would look around for the healthiest person. I would point to them and say, give me your seat. And there was one point where somebody kind of gave me some attitude back and the bus driver turned around. He told that guy, you get a seat and walk to the back of the bus. And that was that. And I didn't make a big deal out of it, but it was, we kind of tried to have certain rules as a society. To, how do we make things best for everybody? Yes. And this young guy playing around on his phone, um, he didn't need to be in that seat. There were lots of other seats available. In fact, he only had to walk maybe four rows back for a seat, but I wanted to be near that door because when we got to my stop, I didn't want to have to fight people and get out as best I can. And yep. along those lines, uh, in terms of dealing with my disability, there are things where like when you take a subway, knowing that, all right, in two stops, I'm going to have to get out on the other side of the train. So I'm going to need to position myself as best as I can. So I actually get off the train and not get stuck and wind up in Queens or something <laughs> like that. Yeah. That could, yeah. 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 I feel the same way on Amtrak. Sure. I mean, you know, my husband, and I, I actually will, I will kick people out of the two handicapped seats. I mean, it's just, you know what, they're there for a reason sure. and you are in your twenties or, you know, you just, you need to get up. You need yeah. to get up. Like what happened? And I'm glad that you had a bus driver who actually stood up for you and said, move to the back of the bus, because that's not always what happens. I'm always appreciative of people who get it, you know, yeah. and they do. And it's not really traveling, honestly, as you're saying, you know, you're on a subway, you're on a bus, you're on a train, you're on a plane, you know, I mean, in your own car, no, you don't have to worry, but it is, it, you know, and you, I also do that probably like you, even though you have the cane with you, I just, I was just stinky and I have dropped foot like, like Seth and I will not use a cane. I used it some, um, at certain points over the past 22 years, but not a lot. I I'm, I'm very stubborn. So, but I also had a service dog for, for 14 years. So that also changed things because that helped me. Um, but people, yeah, people are funny. People are very funny. Exactly. And I also felt like when I had been in that situation, when I was 18 years old, sitting in a seat or something like that, even if it was not one of these marked seats, 
if I saw some pregnant woman get on the bus, I'm giving her my seat. I'm not even thinking twice about it. So the fact that I kind of don't really expect other people to act the way that I do, uh, I do also kind of expect them to act like human beings when you actually call them out and say, look, uh, time for you to get out of that seat and and move a little bit. Um, I have no problem doing that. Where, again, I don't want special accommodation for anything, but I just want you to act like a human being. And and when you get, see, now special accommodations where they really work very well is in college. For my graduate school, I used my accommodations because I got longer time to be able to take an exam. I got some extra time in regards to papers and I could ask more questions. I could get the syllabus earlier. Those accommodations were perfect. And I will tell you, all of you who are listening, they've gotten much, much better. Some universities are much more seasoned. Um, Loyola University was great. Maryland University was great. Sarah Lawrence was not. But it's a smaller university. And they didn't really have, they had an assigned person to speak to us. But they weren't really helpful. They didn't have as much things in place to help people in regards to cognition and things like that, that, you know, you just need, you need some extra time, you know, and sometimes you could have somebody take you, if you needed a note taker taking notes for you, you could do that. Those things I think Seth are really useful. Um, But in the workplace, I'm probably as reticent as you are because I just, I want to control what I'm going to say and what I'm going to share. And I wish that they looked at it as being able to fill quotas, which would be great because I think people with a disability um, that is much more visual or much, much more serious in regards to being disabled should be allowed because, you know, it, it, the cases we're talking about for Seth and I are not people with mental handicaps. There are people who are super smart. He's worked Wall Street. He's done, you know, he's doing financial analysis and quantitative. Those are serious things. So he is as smart, smart as a tax. So that's not the issue. But in regards to talking about disability, I wanted to talk about that. And I felt that Seth and I could have that conversation about, you know, how how you go about, you know, making your decisions on what you'll share. Yeah. On the bus, please share. On the train, on the plane. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Seuss, bus, train, or plane. Please share. <laughs> yeah, but if if you're asking for an extra day off after the Super Bowl, um, that's probably yeah. not the best use of whatever of disability. Yeah, yeah, because, yeah, yeah, no. Because everybody would like a day after the sure. Super Bowl, you know? To, <laughs> well, I want to thank you so, so much, Seth, for delving into places and talking about things that happen you know, brain tumors are scary. You know, I have a friend who also you guys heard from Lisa Barry Blackstock. She had a brain tumor when she was at, you know, at Stanford. Things happen to us and we should feel together, you know, and closer because of that, that there are other people who understand what you're going through. And sometimes it's multiple conditions. Sometimes it's one. Sometimes it's visual. Sometimes it's invisible. But these are all things that we can come together as women, as men, and be empowered by hearing from people like Seth Horowitz and the others that we learn. And also making lifestyle changes and doing things that will help us. And 
I appreciate you sharing what you did because it is, it's, you know, these are, these are big things and this audience, you know, for empowerment um, is, is important to be able to hear the truth and um, really talk it. So I thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. And you guys have a good day and we will see you next Sunday.